0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day,
1: So on Sunday, Dan Patrick asked me, tell me about this new show of yours. And I said, well, Dan, it's essentially a ripoff of your show. Man, 20 years they've let you run a website and be on TV? What The hell is wrong with everybody? All right, I get it. I mean, you're one of the best there is at copy paste, copy paste snarky comment. Nobody does it better than you. Seriously, I like working with you though. You the man, congratulations. It is a great accomplishment no matter how crazy your bosses are for letting you go for 20 years. Amazing.
0: Amazing. Hey, Florio. Chris Cannon here, checking in. I know Sims' is back has got to be tired from carrying you all football season. But in all seriousness, I wanted to congratulate you on 20 years of PFT. As a Vikings fan, you better enjoy the celebration because you could go another 20 years, and they still won't win a Super Bowl.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great that's great well done thank you very much Chris Sims and Chris canny and he's right and, and and it's fitting my goal like I got into this business you know we all at some point growing up we fell in love with the NFL not generally you had a team that you loved and I grew up a big Vikings fan in Steelers country and that was a challenge in and of itself it was fitting the night before the 20th anniversary of the website that my passion caused me to create that the Vikings would do what the Vikings have pretty much done for my entire life, which is ultimately find a way to fail. Good morning, and welcome to PFT Live. And Mike got to call a game. You got to witness the failure last night.
0: Yeah, it was was pretty special being in that stadium to watch – Minnesota go down in flames in that one. But first, congrats to you. 20 years. I mean, it's like one of those things when I know when I was a kid in the backyard, I hoped to play professional football, and I was fortunate enough to do it. Didn't know I'd have the broadcasting career. I'm wondering when you were when you were young, sitting around the TV, watching TV at 8, 10 years old, were you thinking someday I'm going to have a show for 20 years, and I'm going to be the man? Was, was that on your mind at a young age as other guys were dreaming about touchdown catches and home runs hit, that you would be He's sitting at a desk talking for this long
1: i was just eating oreos i was just eating oreos that's it i had no that's the thing i always loved the story of how someone's vision actually came to fruition and they spoke it into existence or whatever the thought may be i have no great story of some light bulb going off when i was watching <laughs> nfl football on the old you know TV with the fake wood plastic on it that was the centerpiece of everyone's living room back in the 70s. No, I just liked football. And, you know, you never could have dreamed back in those days how the world would be. We all thought there would be flying cars. We did not think that there would be <laughs> Al Gore's invention, the internet, that would revolutionize the way people communicate, the way people can comment. It, it leveled the playing field, Mike. I said this last night. It completely leveled the playing field, the rise of the Internet. You can be anywhere in the world. You can live anywhere. There are no barriers. There are no boundaries. I didn't have to move to New York. I didn't have to move to some other major city. I didn't have to. I mean, I put in my grunt work. Trust me. I went a long time without making a penny, but I didn't have to do it the traditional way. I, I was able to do it my own way. And no one ever could have envisioned that until it happened, really.
0: How, how important to your career was it that we came up with this or Al Gore came up with this Internet so enough fans could yell and say mean things to you to have you have this incredible career?
1: <laughs> well, and it's funny because when we started with, with a comment section 10, 12 years ago, my wife would actually read them. And oh. she would say to me, she would say, why do you let people say these things about you on your platform and I said look here's what you got to understand the passion that manifests itself in these folks taking strong issue and taking personal shots and saying I'm stupid and crazy and anything else they want to say many words we can't use unless you're Chris Sims, and you can get away with one every few weeks but um, I said that same passion is what brings them it's the passion that makes you into a football fan if they didn't care it wouldn't be there so the byproduct of them caring so much is yeah every once in a while they're not going to like something i say so what life goes on and 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 we have this platform and we have to deal with it and so once she realized that and agreed to not read the comments everything was fine but but that's uh, you know yeah. that's how it goes people people want to express themselves and this is given uh, you know the the entire internet experience is given Given people a way to express themselves like nothing ever before did.
0: Yeah. The, the, the wrong thing is for the spouse to read the comments. That's exactly right. You yep. just got to say, just, just don't read them. Don't answer them. This is just how it works. And you talk about that, that fan emotion, boy, was it evident last night as the Viking fans were booing their team when they don't want off the field at halftime and when they went off the field at the end of the game.
1: Well, and, Hey, look, the Vikings fans have every right to feel that way. I made a point last night on Twitter that the Vikings are never going to be good enough to win a Super Bowl, and they're never going to be bad enough to blow everything up and start over. It's purple purgatory. That's where this team is. It's 9-8, and 8-9, eight, eight and 10-7, get to the playoffs every second or third year, every other year, whatever the case may be. Maybe win a playoff game but ultimately never be a Final Four team. Well, they were in 2017, but that was the aberration. But, you know, Mike, and, and this is the cynic in me coming out, but the cynic in me is one of the reasons why the platform rise to the level that it did. Or rose. I don't know. Conjugation's not my strong suit anymore. But, but, uh, um, but anyway, what was I saying? Uh, anyway, the the... the Every team wants you to think that they're all in every year to win the Super Bowl because they have to say that. Because if they don't say that, nobody's coming to the games. Nobody's coming to buy the stuff. Nobody's engaged. I really don't think if we attached most of the owners, if not 31 or 32 of them to a lie detector test, they would admit that they win the Super Bowl every year. They win it every year. All they have to do is pull up their bank accounts. All they have to do is look at their holdings. They win it every year. And they understand part of the game is to act like you're trying to win it every year. If you're measuring success based on winning the Super Bowl, you're pissed off every year. Even if you're the Patriots, you're pissed off far more often than you're not. You just have to act like it. And the Vikings are the epitome of the franchise that is running the grift on its fan base. It's right there. And it's every year. Ooh, this is our year. Ooh, this is our year. Oh, this is our year. And at some point, they're going to figure it out. And they're just going to go find something else to do with their time and their money.
0: Well, the, the thing that goes on, and I think why owners feel that way, and coaches can feel that way, and players can feel that way, because we've seen a five and eleven team one year win the Super Bowl. The next, it can happen in football. We've seen five teams. It was averaging for a while five teams a year that didn't make the playoffs made the playoffs the next year. So you could see that turnaround. So once owners see that, once owners see like a rookie quarterback play well, they say we should have that when we need to get a quarterback. Uh, if you have a losing season, well, that team. Went on the next year, made the playoffs or won the Super Bowl. We should be able to do that. So that's the confidence that you build. And you're right about Purple Purgatory as far as being that midland team. You know, because you're you're never good enough to be in it at the end and have everybody kind of hanging on the plays. But you're not bad enough, and nobody wants to be that bad. But the one thing you get is high draft picks then, at least to try and make your team better and build off of it. When you're in that midland range, you hopefully are getting a good pick in the first round in the mid-range, but you got to do it through free agency and through trades as well when you're just kind of hanging out there in the gray area all the time.
1: Yeah, Mike, Lions fans would say we'd love to be, you know, middle of the pack, and we'd love to – to kind of be in the conversation, but I think that there is a certain amount of fatigue that builds up when it's every year the same thing. And you see other teams that have ways of being aggressive and going all in, like what the Rams do. Now the Rams may take it too far, but for certain teams that feel like they're in the window, you sense an urgency that they're ready to maybe compromise the future a little bit to try to grab the brass ring now. And I never feel that the Vikings do that. I always and hey, maybe that's but see that's the thing, maybe that's what they want to do. They just always want to be on the fringe, and one of these years they're going to get lucky and the planets are going to align. But every year there's always going to be a team that is the product of things working out in a great way, and they're going to be dominant, and you're not going to be able to compete with them because they have gone all in, like the Buccaneers have done the past couple of years, or like the Rams do. Like the Packers are doing, quietly amassing veteran players who are making a difference. The Randall Cobb move was brilliant. It helped them win the game the other night against the Cardinals but the Vikings are just kind of doing the dog paddle and uh, at some point the dog paddle is not good enough let's hear from Mike Zimmer who I don't think was happy with any of the various mm. strokes that were ultimately displayed by the Vikings last night here he is
0: what are the challenges of going against a
1: backup quarterback when maybe you didn't have a tremendous amount of film on Cooper Rush we had a lot of film on him we had a lot of film on him how do you feel you guys did against him not good enough Like uh, Adam just said, if you're not frustrated, there's something wrong with you. You know, you shouldn't be a player, you shouldn't be a coach if you're not frustrated. How do you take that frustration now at this point and turn it? You've got some big games coming up. There needs to be some time to think about it and kind of figure out what we need to do from here. Because, you know, this was a tough loss tonight. Indeed it was. Two weeks to get ready for it, and they went against a backup quarterback, and they knew. It did not take a genius to read the tea leaves that were coming out last week about who was going to play and who wasn't going to play. Jerry Jones was doing the best he could to play the role of Carnival Barker and make it look like Dak Prescott was going to play because that's the game every year that goes up against the World Series. And I appreciate I said it last week, Jerry, thank you for doing what you can to bump up our rating on NBC for Sunday night. But it was clearly pointing by Thursday to Cooper Rush, and that's what they got. And they, they, they shouldn't have needed a ton of preparation to face Cooper Rush. The problem was the Minnesota offense, 278 yards total. They got out gained 419 to 278. Mike, it should have been worse than 20 to 16.
0: Well, with, without question, it should have been worse. Again, they had the lead at halftime, but they botched the end of the second quarter so badly, their fans booed them going off the field with the lead. I mean, it was it was tough to watch at the end of the half, and then as we'll get into the end of the game, two timeouts in a row by Mike Zimmer, costing them an, an important five yards. But you know, Xavier Woods, who was a Cowboy and is now with the Minnesota Vikings, actually caused two turnovers uh, last night. He, he actually, he, he said, he tweeted out, we didn't watch much tape. A couple of clips on Cooper Rush, we were preparing for four or watching four. And I know people may say, why do you, how can you not prepare? And then my thought is, there's not much tape to watch on Cooper Rush. It's not like you had this, unless you want to go back to college where the guy had like 49 straight starts and I'm sure you look at some of that, but there just wasn't a ton, of, certainly, of NFL tape to be looking at. So I, I kind of get it. And player, you're right. During that week, you had to know you were going to get Cooper Rush. And, and quite honestly, Minnesota defensively was doing well. They knew the Cowboys were going to want to run the ball, to control the ball, to help protect uh, their, their backup quarterback. And they held the Cowboys under 100 yards rushing, a team that was, I believe, first or second in the league running the ball. So they were doing a nice job there. But I'm not going to lie, Mike, this was an ugly game. If I were to tell you one team was 1-for-13 on third down conversions and the other team was 7-for-14, I think people would naturally assume, well the backup quarterback had to be the 1-for-13. Wrong. It was a Minnesota offense that was 1-for-13 on third downs against a defense in Dallas that only had 11 sacks coming into the game and had a very low pressure rate, I think like 26% coming into the game. So they weren't putting a lot of pressure on the quarterback. They did a pretty good job of that last night. But that was a bit of a head-scratcher. It, it, was, it was an ugly game all around, 18 total penalties for 153 yards, 11 penalties on, on Dallas, 9 on their defense, 3 unnecessary roughness on the Minnesota's last drive when they took the three-point lead. You thought that Dallas was just imploding and setting up their, their backup quarterback to just struggle. But, hey, Mike, it was backup quarterback day between Mike Wright and Trevor Simeon and then Cooper Rush, what he did last night. The backup prove they can come in and get the job done.
1: This Vikings formula, and I, I saw it coming last night, they're going to take the lead late, they're going to blow the lead late, and then they're going to try to pull a rabbit out of their butts to win the game. It worked against Detroit. It worked against Carolina. Same formula last night, and it and it just – didn't work last night. And one of the reasons it didn't work, it should have been a tie, 16-16, not 20-16. to You mentioned the two consecutive timeouts by Mike Zimmer. I was starting to wonder when he was going to use them. You know, you can't bank them for next right. week. We see coaches do that sometimes. And then he used the one at the right time and then forgot that he used it and used another one later. And, and this is such a stupid rule. You're not allowed to use two straight timeouts, so they're supposed to ignore when you try to call the second one. But if they screw up two... You lose the timeout, and you get penalized five yards. I, I just, It's just bizarre. It really is. But multiple r- mistakes were made there by both the officials and by Zimmer. And, you know, this is something I've learned from Tony Dungy over the years. On game day, the head coach really doesn't have that many responsibilities. Really doesn't. And, you know, if you're so caught up in running the defense that you lose sight of the big-picture stuff, and this is shades of when Jason Garrett was the offensive coordinator of the Cowboys. If you can't do the micro and the macro, if you can't do what play are we going to call next, you get so caught up in what you're doing on the side of the ball in which you're an expert that you forget the things you need to be doing as the head coach, like managing the timeouts, remembering that you've already taken a timeout before this snap and not taking another one. That's inexcusable, and that's on you. And Zimmer, to his credit, said, I screwed up. I don't know who else he could have blamed it on. But yeah. that's the kind of thing that gets you fired, Mike. If, you, if you're a team that's chronically mediocre and the fan base starts calling for somebody's head, that's the kind of tangible thing that someone can point to and say, time to go.
0: Uh, listen, I mean, that, they had this game. Dallas had a two-minute drill at the end of the half that went nowhere and actually gave Minnesota a chance to do something at the end of the half, and and they they screwed that up. And then here you are with 2.51 to go and a lead in this game, a three-point lead with a backup quarterback uh, in Cooper Rush. And eight plays later and two minutes later, they go down and they score a touchdown. Now listen, Cooper Rush started out early, you know, we can really dissect this thing, started out very shaky, but some of the routes changed. They went to a little more spot routes, throw it to a spot than a moving target, and that picked up in the second half. But I'll say this, while Cooper Rush played well and he's going to get a lot of back slaps, no doubt about it, your big-time players have to come up with big-time plays. And on that last drive, it was Amari Cooper, you know, over Brashawn Breland who had really great coverage. The ball gets tipped in the air and he gets a 33-yard reception. It's Third and 16, and then we get the two timeouts in a row, now all of a sudden it's third and 11. You throw a a short pass to Zeke Elliott, really it's a safe play. You didn't want to make Cooper try and throw it to the end zone. It's a safe play, mainly thinking you're just going to kick a chippy and tie this game up but Zeke Elliott busts through two tacklers, not once, but twice, and gets the 11 yards. Now, if it was third and 16, he may not have got all of that, but they got the extra five yards because of the two timeouts that was called, and then Amari Cooper over Cameron Dantzler, you just, that was one of Cooper Rush's best throws. He had a great throw to Wilson down the middle for a 73 yard touchdown right on the money, but that high point that Amari Cooper had, a five yarder, that touchdown was an incredible play, and then the end of that game for Minnesota, They had no timeouts because they they had burned them all, and it was just just ugly, the drive that they tried to have to try and win that game.
1: Oh, yeah, it was just a mess. No sense of urgency, no sense of expertise, no sense that they were going to pull the rabbit out of their butts on the final drive of the game, which started with under a minute and – this was the killer when K.J. Osborne didn't get out of bounds and the clock kept going yep. and then there were penalties and it was just confusion and you never got the sense that they were going to get even in position to have a reasonable shot at a Hail Mary opportunity, which would have been fitting because the original Hail Mary happened. Yeah. Why well, am I reminding myself of that? Between those two <laughs> plays back when I was sitting watching Oreo or eating Oreos and watching TV or watching <laughs> Oreos and eating TV, which was entirely possible <laughs> as well. Yeah, the, the Amari Cooper catch that sparked that drive that put the Cowboys ahead, that was shades of Chris Dishman and Antonio Freeman that he yeah. did what catch from the Packers-Vikings game in 2000. Al Michaels was on the call uh, that, that allowed the Packers to win an overtime game and frankly cost the Vikings the one seed that year. That was one of the years that they were good enough to almost get – to a Super Bowl but didn't quite get there cuz they got blown out by the Giants but they would have been the one seed but Breeland pops the ball up and you see it ricocheting around and you just, just you have that sense like oh you assume it's incomplete and it's like what yep. what happened there? And that that was that yeah it's one of those moments Mike that gives a team life. It gives a team a kick in the ass and it starts to develop confidence and there's that Zeke Elliott run you mentioned. That's just one guy wants it and the other guys yep. don't that's what it is right you have moments like that on a football field where one guy wants it and everyone who's out there whose job it is to tackle him doesn't want it the way he does
0: I, I, I was amazed at that I was amazed I understood the play completely at the don't don't ruin the chance for a tie. Safe play, get it to one of your guys with a short pass so you're not really trying to stretch anything and see what he does. Yeah, and, and you're right, him just straight ahead through through two tacklers. I mean, that was I I was stunned at that. And you're right, that's just a whole lot of want to. There's there's technique, there's execution, and then there's want-to. And that was just want-to to try and, once once he broke through the first two just to get to those sticks, and he was able to do that. So, like I said, I, I thought a good job by Kelly. Cal- more in the second half. I thought the routes changed. He had, he really had trouble, Cooper Rush, especially early on. There was pressure in his face, and he got a little jittery in the pocket, and when he had to throw to moving targets, there was a struggle. But there were the there were the curl routes. There were the comeback routes where he was throwing to a spot in the second half, and he really started to take off there, and I think he really built confidence uh, there as well. And then I, it, it seemed like Dallas was going to give this thing away, Mike, on Minnesota's drive to take the lead. As I said, 9 of their 11 penalties were on defense and on that drive there were 3 unnecessary roughness penalties, 2 on Randy Gregory that was just like, what what are you doing? You're handing Minnesota maybe a touchdown or if nothing else an easy 3 points which Turned out to be right at the end, they at least bowed up and made Minnesota kick a field goal to only go up three. Then that led to the Cooper rush and the the Cowboy drive that started with 2.51 to go. But the Cowboys really got undisciplined there on that last drive, but then bowed up just well enough to at least force a field goal out of it.
1: We have been spending a lot of our time bashing the Vikings for what they did wrong. We need to spend some time praising the Cowboys or Vince, the Cowboys fan, who sends me profane emails all the time because he's <laughs> he, he isn't happy with how we cover his team. We'll give the Cowboys some credit now. Let's hear from Cooper Rush, the guy who got the start. The guy that we knew was going to get the start, but he got it and he made the most of it. Here's a little bit from him. What was your reaction when you were told... After you
0: you wouldn't I mean, I had a sense it was probably coming. I mean, all week I took, you know, everything in practice. Um, so you, you had more sense of this is real than usual. Um, so I had a pretty good feeling um, just based on kind of where he was all week. And, you know, all week you prepared like you were playing. So it wasn't, wasn't a huge deal.
1: On that note of rapport, of course, it'd be special to make that play to any player. But for you guys to, I mean, not be started so long and working together for all those years, what did it mean to have that moment?
0: Yeah, you know, I've you know, played with Seth a lot in the preseason games. Um, you know, a couple years he was on the scout team before everyone realized how good he was and got got up to the, the big show. But uh, he's an unbelievable player. We're lucky to have him. Um, does everything for us.
1: Yeah, you mentioned it, Mike. It was the day of the backup quarterback from Cooper Rush to Mike White to Trevor Simeon. They all came in and got it done. And uh, kudos to Cooper Rush, 325 passing yards against a good Vikings defense. I don't know how good that Vikings defense is anymore. You know, we build a narrative and we don't want to change it. That Vikings defense isn't very good. And when you're a head coach who is a defensive specialist, that's another ingredient that results in at some point between now and the Monday after the end of the regular season, you're not there anymore.
0: So, you know, you you look at – What Minnesota did and going into the game plan, okay, you have a backup quarterback, so what do you do? You're going against one of the top rushing teams in the league, so stop their run. Easy to say, but then you try and execute it. And as I said, they did. Dallas had 78 yards rushing in this game, so that was from the Minnesota side. That's what they wanted to do, force the passing from a backup quarterback. You came into this weekend tied with Chicago for the lead in sacks with 21 sacks and a very high pressure rate with just four down linemen. They did have three sacks last night, but you do give up yards passing the ball. And in the second half, that's where Cooper Rush started to take over here. And you do have to give a lot of credit to him and the receivers, both Cooper... Uh, and and Lamb were over a hundred yards because again they slowed down the running game, but of course Dallas will keep running it because what it did is it helped the play action. You know they always have the running threat again part of the the Kellen Moore game plan, which I thought was really really good is and not like you know it's a big secret here they love to run the ball and it sets up the play action. We, we we see more of of a play action right or play action left and that half boot take half the field out have a short medium and long route. We see it more and more and it's great to be used with inexperienced quarterbacks. It takes half the field away, but it gives them quick options. And a couple times Cooper Rush saw he didn't have an option and just took off. So it was – it was – it wasn't – I guess a performance that I would expect initially out of a backup quarterback, he looked uncomfortable. And they tried to throw short, early passes to help him and then started going down the field a little more and he looked uncomfortable because the pressure was getting after him a little bit in the first half, collapsing the pocket. In the second half, he had a little more of a clean pocket at times, so kudos to the line because Tyron Smith ended up leaving in the second half. He had an ankle injury. Now, Daniil Hunter, one of the great rushers for Minnesota, also with a shoulder injury, was out of the game a lot as well. So that that hurt them on the rush side, but yeah, you have to you have to applaud the Cowboys because what happens and I've been in this situation when you lose your quarterback both sides of the ball have their when they're in their meeting room say we got to make up for it somehow the old line we got to block well whether it's running the ball we need to run it we need to protect him the defense saying you know what we got to come up with plays you know we got to help the offense we got to put this backup quarterback in the best field position that we can and at times they didn't quite honestly at times they didn't and Cooper Rush, to his credit when he had to you know he, he bailed he bailed this team out but at the end of the day as I said you expect the great players to make the great plays, and that was Cooper and Zeke Elliott when they needed those big plays.
1: And when you when you think about it, 184 passing yards for one quarterback and 325 for the other, you would assume it would have been Cousins with the 325, but he had 184. Adam Thielen had 78 yards. Justin Jefferson had 21. Meanwhile, both Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb were over 100. Even though Cedric Wilson took up a 73-yard chunk yeah. with that long touchdown, uh, that Cooper and Lamb, I think, are establishing themselves as the best duo. In the NFL right now. If you can have both guys with 100 yards receiving with your backup quarterback, those are two special receivers. So the Cowboys, another win. They're 6-1. And they continue to build, and we'll see how far it goes for them. Maybe they won't be only the four seed. You know, my, Mike. My argument was they're locked in at the four seed. Why risk injuring and re-injuring and aggravating and re-aggravating that calf and have it hang over Dak Prescott for the rest of the year? Take a few games off if you need to. You're not getting any higher than the four seed. Maybe they will. Maybe maybe, maybe yep. they will. Right? Maybe they will. And one of the reasons maybe they will. The team they lost to is now behind them in the standings, and we'll pivot to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now. Mike, uh, let's, let's before we get into this game, let's hear from Tom Brady, because that pretty much tells us everything we need to know about what happened yesterday to the defending Super Bowl champions.
0: Tough game. Um, good team, but we didn't obviously play the way we were capable, and I got to play better, so bad throws. <laughs> bad throws. Yeah, I just threw it to the wrong guy, so I had Mike open cost us a game. i got to not throw interceptions. That's the key.
1: Tom, last year you guys went into the fight week on a downturn and lost three out of four. and we able to kind of use this time off to bounce back? Is there a key to this team doing the same and coming back different?
0: Yeah, I mean, we well, we got a lot of fighters, so going in there, battle back, try to do better next week.
1: Mike, what was so jarring about yesterday's game, we hadn't seen one like that from Brady this year, and we just kind of assumed that that the, the progression of his time in Tampa had kind of worked all that out and those games were over where he was going to have the head scratchers. But yesterday was a head scratcher.
0: Well, it, it was a head scratcher. And, and I think, you know, we, we, we spent all this time praising Brady, which, which we should. He deserves that. And we, and we have to understand, you know, when at times he's going to make mistakes, and we've seen him make mistakes certainly against New Orleans before, the fumble there, kind of the double pump fumble that he had. You know, got he knows he's got to hang on to that ball. That last interception, hell, he's been around long enough. He wears the hat of responsibility when when he knows he shouldn't have done it. You know, the first interception, a guy takes falls off his coverage uh, and, and breaks on the breaks on this ball and picks it off. The second one, you know, again he did it. Too deep zone, and P.J. Williams just makes a great break on the ball, and he did have Evans open. He just can't make that throw. It's a mistake. But again, you're putting even with his mistakes, you're playing a team where they lost their starting quarterback in Jameis Winston and a backup had to come in. Now, albeit a backup who started a number of games in the NFL in Trevor Simeon, that should be advantage Bucks and they were not able to take advantage of it. You just, when Brady has to have a drive and have a score, we're just so accustomed to him getting it done. Anytime a team goes ahead, you go, "Uh uh-oh, there's time on the clock for Peyton Manning, for Aaron Rodgers, for Drew Brees, for Tom Brady, and you just assume that he's going to take the team down, and you know what you find out every now and then? One of the greatest to ever do it is, is human. He makes mistakes, and he made a mistake there. And so I don't think we can take much more away from that because he's not going to play a perfect game. Throws four more touchdowns, though. The guy's still unbelievable at what he does, but every now and then you make a mistake. And he stood right up there and said, threw it to the wrong guy. Sometimes, you know, it's Occam's razor, Mike. It's just as simple as that. I threw it to the wrong guy. I had an open guy, and I didn't throw it to him.
1: And they go into their bye week with a loss just like they did last year. They lost to the Chiefs at home. To, to enter a late buy and they didn't lose another game after that 4-0 and to finish the regular season then obviously 4-0 and in the postseason and uh, that, hey w- we know what Brady will do he'll internalize it he'll get upset and he'll try to figure out a way to get past it but there is something about these Saints you saw the graphic up there 20 and 4 against everyone else mm-hmm. 1 and 3 against the Saints now he's 1 and 0 in the Saints game that matters the postseason last year But that is just jarring when you look at that. Eight touchdowns and seven interceptions against the Saints. He did have four yesterday, which is impressive because you know what? He quietly set the record all time for most four touchdown games. He and Drew Brees were tied at 97. (laughs) Brady has i – I don't think he cares, but but he got that yesterday with his four touchdown passes. But, uh, yeah, they got some work to do, and they'll have a rematch with the Saints coming up later this year. And uh, it would be uh, smart if they could win it. They got two – Two games back-to-back, week 14, week 15, Bills and Saints at home. Those are going to be important games now for a team that, you know, it's just amazing how quickly that aura, not I don't want to say of invincibility, but but just special. You know, there's a handful of teams that feel special, and one game, one little pinprick on the balloon changes everything.
0: So here, here's the thing, you know, with we look at two teams. Look at the Super Bowl teams last year. People are genuinely concerned about Kansas City and, like, can they flip the switch? They think they can because we've seen them be down in games and come back. But there's concern there, a redone offensive line. You know, there's concern. With, with Tampa Bay, you know, I, I think a lot of it is, listen, you'd love to have a high seed. You'd love the road to have to come through your town. I, I get all that. But for them, I just have that feeling like their feeling is just get there. You know, we should win the division. You know, we, we really should. We should have a really good record. But just get there. Get Gronk healthy. He's missed some games. If we got because you you have this veteran team. You brought everybody back. Just get there. We all know how to win. We all did it in the playoffs. All to the Super Bowl championship last year. So to me, it's it's kind of different feelings of Kansas City. There's a wonder of what can they can they regain this? And for Tampa Bay, I really think it's like. Eh, they have a bunch of guys who have been there, a bunch of veterans who came and wanted to play with Tom, and it's all about, for them, peaking at the right time.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and they understand that. They understand that, but they also understand they yeah. have a rival yeah. in their division that is making things interesting. They both have two losses, and, uh, it, hey, it makes it more interesting. I don't like it when teams run away with divisions. I like it to be tight. I like it to be close, and kudos to the Saints for making it happen yesterday without Jameis Winston. Suffered what is believed to be a torn ACL when he was the victim of a horse-collar tackle yesterday. Done for the year. Trevor Simeon came in and replaced him and played well. Well enough to get the victory. Um, but, you know, there are going to be questions about what, what they do going forward. And that, this is why that, that Roy Williams rule was put in place. Oh, you see the knee? I mean, it's obvious there's a serious condition there from the moment it happens. And, again, the, uh, the belief is it's a torn ACL. Taysom Hill, I'm told, is going to be back next week, or at least he's expected to be back. He missed three total weeks, two games, because they had the bye in between with a concussion That helps to have him. It helps that Simeon's been there and knows the offense. Drew Brees explained that last night. Drew Brees also said he's not coming back, which I'm sure some fans at least were were curious. He made it clear last night he's not coming back. And also, Mike, I'm told that Cam Newton will not even be getting a phone call from the Saints. That was something I thought of last night because, hey, Sean Payton has dealt with this guy better part of a decade in the NFC South. And if anybody knows him, it's Payton. And, And I said last night on Football Night in America, we'll find out whether or not Payton thinks he can help pretty quickly, because he's either going to call him or he's not, and uh, I'm told he's not.
0: Yeah, yeah listen, I, I think Sean is comfortable with Taysom Hill and with Trevor Simeon. Again, the, the, one of the biggest differences is that, now, Simeon has a lot of experience. We, we know he's been a starter, but but remember and, and understand, during a week, the starting quarterback gets the monster lion shares of the number one step. so Simeon doesn't get that. So, really, out of Out of the three backups we're talking about, like Mike White with the Jets, he got all the one snaps. Cooper Rush was getting the one snaps in practice for Dallas all week as well. Simeon wasn't, but he also had the most experience out of the backups that went in this week. So he could hit the ground running a little faster. And you have Taysom Hill sitting there as well, who Sean Payton loves. And so you have the two of them. So I think between the two of them, Sean Payton is going to be very comfortable. Now we'll see. If practical application on the field pans out and you and you're getting the production out of those two, but I'm not surprised Sean is not looking elsewhere right now since he has these two guys in the quarterback a room right now, knowing the offense. Simeon is a smart player, and if it, it we'll see, when Hill is back, as you mentioned, may, maybe this week, but how how they rotate the the plays, whoever is going to be named the starter has got to get all those number one snaps and be prepared. That'll be the biggest difference because Jameis got all of those and Jameis is going to be done.
1: And you know, when Jameis was the starter, the thought was, okay, he can be the starter and we'll just see more Taysom Hill, but we really haven't seen... Nope the level of Taysom Hill that we thought. So it's going to be an interesting decision. Does Sean Payton want to go with Simeon and use Hill in the jack-of-all-trades role where he's really not used the way that we expect, or just go ahead and make Taysom Hill the starter? My guess would be if Taysom Hill's cleared, he'll be the starter.
0: I, and, and, and in all honesty, I think I would go the other way. You always have Taysom Hill that can come in. But he is that jack-of-all-trades guy. Uh, so to make him just a the pure quarterback, if – it all depends on the trust of Trevor Simeon and what Sean Payton has, and that's something we don't know. We don't see Trevor in practice. We don't know that relationship. We do know he has some starting experience, but I was always be one that, that would go kind of that route, keep Taysom Hill in his role, and if you need to put him at quarterback, so be it. But we know Sean loves Taysom Hill, so I'm not sure which way he would go here. I, me personally, I, I would lead to Trevor Simeon.
1: It'll be interesting to see how they work it out. They have the Falcons this weekend, and, and they're building something. They were so inconsistent early on, win one, lose one, win one, lose one. Then out of their bye week, they've won two in a row. Biggest win of the season so far, taking down the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and reminding everyone that Sean Payton knows a thing or two about coaching and the Saints <laughs> know a thing or two about playing football. And by the way, i got to mention this. Mark Ingram, bringing him back this week via trade, and you you could see the energy that he brought to the team, that lift, that kick in the ass. Sometimes you need that midseason to kind of break out of the funk and get you refocused, and having Mark Ingram back could be one of those things where we look back end of the year and say, wow, that that was kind of a turning point. Even with these quarterback issues, having Mark Ingram back fueled whatever the Saints are ultimately going to be, Mike.
0: Oh, I completely agree. Mark Ingram is one of the best teammate and locker room guys out there. And then his style of play is a motivating style of play. It's called dropping your shoulder and laying the hammer to somebody. And he and Kamara had that great relationship. So I think this was a monster. I think it was a fantastic move for the locker room and on the field for this team. You know, Especially when you, you, when you lose a player like Drew Brees has been the heart and soul of that team for so long. Mark Ingram is a great guy to have in that locker room.
1: All right, let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to flip it over to the AFC when we return. The AFC North, arguably the best division top to bottom in football, got a little compressed on Sunday. We'll break that all down when this Monday edition of PFT Live continues right after this.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Pittsburgh Steelers getting it done defensively in Cleveland. A toughness and intensity that Mike Tomlin... I don't think simply hinted at on Tuesday when he got asked about the USC job. It was obvious. He's salty. He's focused. And, and I, I said this last week, Mike, I have a feeling he just wasn't that way on Tuesday at the press conference. He was that way all week. They had two weeks to get ready for this game, this opportunity to settle the score with the Browns from the playoffs of last year, and really complete this early season turnaround from 1-3 3 to 4 and 3 and now we got to take this team seriously. We had them buried in September and they are very much alive in November.
0: Oh, there is no question that they are I, I listen, I love Mike Tomlin. I am a fan of Mike Tomlin. He's like one of those one of those dads that can get his point across with a stare. And and his talk about the <laughs> USC job was just fantastic. But he gives you that look that that you just you know, I, I remember covering games when I, when I was done and, and covering like a, uh, a Giants game and Bill Parcells, a post a, a game conference. He would just kind of give you that kind of quizzical look like, are you serious with that stupid question? Mike Tomlin gives you a look like, you're going to swallow your heart, and you shouldn't talk anymore. Uh, and the players love him. He's so well-respected. And you, there's just an era of toughness around him that exuded through the team. And you're right. This was a team I had said early on. They don't score enough points to be a threat in the AFC, but they do have a tough defense. Well, the offense is coming, coming alive a little better. They're still not – an unbelievable juggernaut on offense, but when the defense can do what they're doing, it's going to keep them in games, and now this division is unbelievably tight. It's going, to, it's going to be the most competitive division there is in all the NFL, and Pittsburgh has put themselves right back into it.
1: And Pittsburgh had to do it the hard way thanks to a fake field goal that went awry oh. and caused their kicker to be out for the remainder of the game. And, you know, Mike, this is a point that Tony Dungy made yesterday – uh, and, and, and it's an important one roughing the passer it gets called based on who the passer is doesn't it because if that's a real quarterback that's a flag and that's a fresh set of downs and maybe it's a touchdown but there you see that the helmet contact throwing him to the ground he's concussed he's out for the game he's got the same protections in that moment that any quarterback would have but since he's not a quarterback they aren't as quick to grab the flag as they do when somebody breathes on the quarterback the wrong way and they throw the flag.
0: So, two things. First, you're exactly right. I, you know, referees are human as well, and when they see it being a quarterback, they are more apt to, you know, throw the flag first and worry later. But I will say, in the context of whether it was a quarterback or or not, and I know in today's world they call it, I would not have called that Ruthering the Passer. You get a step. It used to be more than that. They've taken that away. There was no more than a step, and he shoved him with his hands. It wasn't like he drove his helmet into him and he landed on him. you got to still be able to have some effect on somebody. So I wouldn't have called it even if it was Tom Brady, but To your point, it absolutely would have gotten called, I think, if it was a normal quarterback. You heard the referee say after the game, we didn't think it rose to the level of roughing the passer. Well we have seen, and I saw it yesterday in my game, a call on roughing the passer, which was one of the worst roughing the passer calls I've ever seen in my life. So this one, compared to the one I saw last night, that one on Boswell should have had the defender jailed, uh, the the way sometimes they call him. but in my opinion, Mike, overall, I would not I do not think that was roughing the kicker, roughing the passer, roughing whoever with the hit. But man did Boswell get launched in that. And then unfortunately, his head hit the ground when he hit the ground. And that was a shame because you're going with no kicker the entire second half.
1: And and here's the reality. When you're 6'2 and 185. That's what's going to happen to you when an NFL defensive lineman shoves you. Uh, It's not going to happen to a guy who's 6'5 and 230. You're 6'2, you're 185. You're going to get thrown around like a kite on on, on a day like that when you take a hit like that. But I still see some helmet contact up top. Just the forces that we have seen that the results drive the flag. And if it looks like, right, if it just looks like it was too big of a hit, the flag comes out. And I think that if it had been a quarterback in a normal play that we saw that kind of hit and that kind of movement and that kind of result it would have been a flag just because we see these flags get thrown because you know personal foul playing football number 56 15 yards that's just, we, agree, you saw that but, last but, night. You're talking about the hit on yes. Kirk Cousins that should not have been roughing the pass.
0: Yeah, yeah, but in the Mike Golick rule book, that was not roughing the the kicker or the passer. But my rule book, I think, is a little different than probably the one that's
1: <laughs> real. Well, <laughs> what what happened was because Chris Boswell wasn't available, Steelers had to go for it on fourth down. That led to the play of the game, the go ahead touchdown. Ben Roethlisberger throwing the fake, the pump oh. underneath. Given a little more time for Pat Frymuth, who had a DB on him, and frymouth made a great catch at the back of the end zone, bobbles the ball, gets the feet in, drags the left foot, touchdown. I talked to him about it after the game, and you know, I said, "What kind of drills do you do to, you know, be able to do that?" And he said, "Hey, we just work at practice, work extra at practice. All these, you know, back of the end zone, making sure you get your feet in. You see how the body works in unison? It's almost like a one-man band with all the different things you got to do to secure the ball, catch it." tuck it, and then make sure that you have the presence of mind to get that second foot down. Great move by Friar who's really emerging as an important weapon in that offense as a rookie, Mike.
0: I, I thought, it was, you listen, you had, you had the defender and Friar both with hands on one another, so that, that's a no call to keep the flag in the pocket, and I'm glad they did. And then it's just a fight for the ball. And think about, and it's not a subtle difference, it's a big difference. All these guys in college, when they work in practice, what are they working to do? Get one foot in. Now, all of a sudden, you got to work to get two feet in. So, I actually think more and more. College players just try and get the two feet in because there is definite difference of just making sure you get one down and not worrying about having to drag the toe of the second foot. You don't have to do that in college. You know, it's a reception. But all of a sudden you get to the league and you gotta see, you know, the 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 rubber pellets come up with the toe drag. So what a great job of body control, you know, coming off the defender, bobbling, having the concentration, and getting the foot down. Just just a monster play. Certainly, Cleveland had time after that to get back in the game, as we'll talk about. And then, and, and another one, just as Tom Brady stepped up and said, "Listen, you know, I can't throw that interception." Jarvis Landry, you know, he had a fumble in the game. He had two drops. He said, "I, I, I he said, I owe my teammates. I, I just can't do that to them." He, he struggled at the end.
1: You know, you made me wonder about the conversations that happen in college football locker rooms and practice fields, at what point a guy realizes, you know what, I probably should start working on getting that second foot down. I pro- I pro- I pro- it's probably a good idea for me, junior, senior year. I should probably start <laughs> thinking about trying to get the second foot down because that's what I'm going to be doing starting next year. And you're right about Jarvis Landry. He's such a key part of that team. He's the heart and soul of that offense. Yep. And we, we take for granted the fact that this is a guy who doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. So when he does, it really is jarring. And this hurts Cleveland because we're, we're still trying to figure out who they are and what they are and, and where they're going to be. Four and four through the first eight games is not where we thought this Browns team was going to be. And, you know, they had that very important win on the Thursday night against the Broncos. They only won it by three points. And it's one of the reasons why I thought the Steelers were going to win this game. I'm just thinking the Browns, like in 2019, we put the bar too high for the Browns. And I think they're still, as an organization, Mike, having a hard time operating with the bar that high.
0: Well, listen, we know they did something last year they hadn't done since the 1800s. So, of course... Everyone's kind of going to get <laughs> caught up in it, and, and, and I think management and coaches have I think they've done a great job in putting pieces together, but then it's just now the next thing is, and it's kind of this way with Cincinnati, because you see Cincinnati playing better as well. But then there's the consistency. Then you see some of the old and you say, oh, you know, that, that's why we struggled with this team for so long. They look good at times. And will they stay good? And that's that's when when you get deep into the playoffs in the Super Bowl, when you get more consistent. And that's the next step for the Cleveland Browns. And we'll talk about the Bengals as well. It's the next step for them because anything can happen on a Sunday. But that that's what you're looking for. And let's be honest, Baker Mayfield is playing also for a contract. Now listen, that's a fiery guy. He gets drilled on the sideline. He gets up, and he's he's trying to rev up the crowd after he runs for a first down. You love his enthusiasm. People just gravitate toward him as a leader of that team as well. But you also need the results. And he got them to the playoffs. He helped get them to the playoffs and get that playoff win. So he's looked to to continue that. And there still are questions on if he is a guy long-term that's going to do it. I think eventually he gets paid, but for the Browns, they're going to say, we want to make sure we're going to do this because we won with our backup on Thursday in case Keenum, we lose this game here. Now they have Cincinnati next week, the only undefeated team, by the way, in divisional play. They're 2-0 right now. So it's a couple of tough games for Cleveland, and already they lost the first one of this of this quick two-game divisional stretch.
1: You know, this this is a topic probably for another day, but I really do think there's going to be an impasse between what the Browns are willing to pay Mayfield and what he's going to want. There's going to be a gap there, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And I'm also surprised. You mentioned they hit along the sideline when Mayfield ran for the first down. That just felt like another one of those moments where we're conditioned to see a flag come out, even though there was nothing yes. about it that was late or dirty or unnecessary. <laughs> But the result was the guy's skidding across the ground into the bench, yes. and he's a quarterback. And you just you you hold your breath and think a flag's going to come out, don't you?
0: Oh, the, Mike, I thought for sure a flag was going to come out again in the Mike Golick rule book. That was not you know, a late hit at all, and I'm glad to see it wasn't called because the refs have been conditioned for that. That's why I don't blame the refs a lot. Of I don't know all the conversations going on to if it's a hard hit, if it looks like a bad hit, throw the flag, we'll worry about it after. You know, maybe it now is, hey, let's make sure it fits in what our definition of of a late hit is because that wasn't a late hit. That was a absolutely clean hit on Baker Mayfield, but you're right. Again, he's not a large guy. He goes flying through the air and slides all the way to the bench. I thought 100% a flag is coming out. And then when Baker got up, I thought he was running over the defender to try and get in his face. He runs downfield to try and get the fans motivated. I thought that was very cool, but I'm with you. So there were a couple of calls that that we have seen in the past, and we just talked about the, the, the two of them, that there have been flags for, and the flag stayed in the pocket. So overall, I'm happy about that to let some football still and hard hits still be happening on the field.
1: Yeah, and I think it's incumbent on the league office when they're supervising and working with the officials to really praise the moments where they get it right because that should motivate the other officials. In the heat of the moment when you have to make that decision, flag or no flag, you got to make that decision to do the right thing you have to really hold up examples like this there's nothing about this it's just football and it's a big hit and big hits happen but there was nothing illegal nothing late nothing improper he was a runner at that point right and uh it just you know he he got he got uh, uh, thrown through the air as a result of the force of the hit nothing wrong with that no limit on how much force you can apply to a clean legal hit in the nfl yet mike
0: no, listen, I agree. And, and he's trying to get yards. He's trying to get the first down. You know, and a lot of times people will say, well, you could see he was running, to, to running out of bounds, but he was going for the first down. He's on the field. He's live game. That's just the way it works. You should be allowed to hit him. And we've seen in the past where flags have come out. And, and and at times, Mike, unfortunately, it makes a defense gun shy. And then all you need is one time for the quarterback to look like he's running out of bounds and to make that little juke and keep gaining more yards down the field. And then the defense would be like, well, what the hell are we supposed to do? You don't want us to hit him when he's running out of bounds, so we hold off. And then they try and get extra yards. Can't be that way. You're on the field. You're fair game to get hit.
1: And and we've seen that where they do the little okey doke at the sideline and pick up yep. another five ten yards because the defenders pull up because they're afraid that if they get too close to the quarterback they're going to get flagged. So it's good that that the officials are starting to realize number six is no different than number thirty four in that instance. And if he's running the ball, he can get hit cleanly and he can get hit hard, and it doesn't matter if it's a quarterback who chooses to do it. Cincinnati Bengals you mentioned them they lost yesterday as well and one of the big reasons why Mike White playing in place of the injured Zach Wilson only the second quarterback in league history to have 400 or more uh, passing yards in his debut Cam Newton was the other one in 2011 let's have a look and a listen at the celebration that happened in the Jets locker room after they pulled off the 34-31 victory.
0: But listen, guys, y'all fucked your asses off. That was awesome. That was absolutely awesome. I just got one freaking game ball. 405 yards passing. <laughs> appreciate everybody in this room for not flinching and trusting in me and and all my teammates we just did out there and executed that's yeah. all they that's all they want to break it down hey enjoy this one boys yeah. enjoy
1: this one hey family on three one two three family that was awesome uh, awesome and and You know, every week I'll get two or three guys, sometimes as many as five or six, depending upon how the day goes, on the phone, five minutes or so, sometimes just a couple minutes. Talk about a play, talk about a moment. You know, for a lot of guys, they've been there and they've done that, and they 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 understand. You have a good game, you make a good play, you get pulled in a bunch of different directions, and you know it's just checking boxes until I go get on the plane or drive to my house. Mike White, he loved everything about it. He was in that moment. I I think we talked for ten minutes. Uh, and so many different details and nuances about you know, getting ready to play in that game and, and understanding the moment and embracing it and believing in the game plan that showed that the team believed in him. They didn't make it run heavy. He said early on the Bengals he thought were surprised that they were so aggressive throwing the ball that they just assumed they'd try to boost Mike White with run game instead of having him throw. He was 11 for 11 to start things off. But, but it really was something, Mike. And th- this guy's been hanging around for a few years. He was a Cowboys draft pick. And I-, I just love to see the diligence, the effort, the perseverance pay off in that moment. You know, he said at one point he heard the crowd chanting, and he said to Josh Johnson, the backup quarterback, what are they chanting? Are they chanting my name? I like, yeah, yeah, they're chanting your name. So what a day for Mike White.
0: Listen, I love these stories. As a former 10th-round draft pick, yes, kids, there was a time when the draft was more than seven rounds. I was a 10th-rounder. My, my son, Mike, was an undrafted free agent. I'm a, I'm a rooter for the guys that you don't know or, or don't think or maybe aren't supposed to make it. Now, it was a 5th-round pick in 18 out of Western Kentucky to Dallas, but I would imagine Google got a workout last week when Zach Wilson got hurt, and all of a sudden the announcer said Mike White's in the game, and there was a collective... Who? You know, nobody knew who the back, except for Jet fans, who the backup quarterback was. And remember, there was there was that kind of, wow, is Robert Sala really going into the season without a veteran backup, at least a veteran in that quarterback room? You know, it's a guy who, who hasn't had a lot of playing time at all, it went in with the rookie Zach Wilson. And wow, I mean, what what an incredible job that he did! And I certainly what helps is he got the whole week. He is the starter now with Zach Wilson being out, so the the game plan is, is made around him. He's in those meetings. He's part of the making of the game plan. So that definitely helps. But he had to go out and execute, and to execute for over four hundred yards. What was the last four hundred yard passer? What Vinny in two thousand? Testaverde, I think, for the Jets. I mean, uh, r- r- ridiculous what he was able to do. Certainly help from the defense uh, getting their first interception of the year uh, with with Shaq Lawson getting it to set up the touchdown. And then the old Philly special that he ends up catching the two-point conversion as well does Mike White. All that being said, you know, this is a team down 31-20 to in the fourth quarter with a backup quarterback and a, basically a high-flying offense with Burrow and those receivers, especially Jamar Chase. You're thinking, no way the Jets are coming back. And here they are getting the lead up 34-31. But even though Joe Burrow is young, um, Mike, there was still over three minutes to go and you think – All right, well, he's got time to at least get him in the field goal position. If not, get a touchdown. They end up having a punt and never get the ball back again. So what a great team effort. But I'm with you. I love, love stories like this when an unknown like Mike White gets his chance to do something and he comes through.
1: You mentioned the two-point play. They call that one to reverse pass to Q. He's the Q, and he told me that the ball was in the air forever, and all I'm thinking is don't drop it, don't drop it. He knew a defender was coming, and that helped him lock in and make the catch, and that was something to put them up by by uh, uh, three points. And then when they're trying to kill the clock, Mike, and uh, I, I, I have a feeling that th- you're not going to like this topic that you're going to have some strong opinions on it. That penalty on Mike Hilton, lowering the helmet to initiate contact, when Ty Johnson, the running back, did the same thing. They both lowered their helmets. And the flag was only called on the defensive player. And Craig Rolstad, the referee, did a pool report afterward. He was a little salty. He's defensive. Hey, I'm not here to tell you what... what uh, you have to do to avoid a penalty in that position. I mean, it's always been a bad rule. They slipped it in the back door at the league meetings in 2018. This is all about, I believe, this is another one of the rules they put in place to make the game safer. this so they can get to 18 regular season games. This is a nonsensical rule that is inconsistently enforced. And when it's enforced in a moment like that, Mike, that's when people think the fix is in.
0: I, I am her- her- horrific call. To me, and and you said it, the inconsistency of the call. How about the, the offensive player dropping it? Remember, for, for a brief time, they said they were going to start calling running backs if they dropped their helmet. They called like one or two in the preseason and then basically said, ah, screw it, we're not going to do it. So the offensive player can do it all they want. The defensive player, I give him credit, he tried to go low. What the NFL basically is doing—it's—it's it's working to the point of defenders going low and not going for the head anymore or launching. He went low. Low man wins. He tried to get lower than the running back and take his legs out. Your head's going to go down when that happens. He wasn't trying to spear. He was going to take his legs out, and the offensive player lowered his head. It is a horrific call, and he can get as salty as he wants the referee in, in in the pool reporting afterward. But that's a horrific <laughs> call. It's a bad call. It's a bad call that time of the game. It's a bad call in the first play of the game. It's a bad call all the way around. And that needs to be looked at, mainly what you said, the consistency of the call. for When I saw that flag come out, I thought to myself, no way they're going to call that because the way he threw the flag and what he was looking at, I thought, he is going to call him for lowering his head. And I said, I- I'm going to be shocked, but I think that's what they're going to do. It was stupid by the league to do. Stupid. They need to look at that, and they need to do a better job of showing consistency on what they do. They can give me any answer in the world they want on that, and it's not going to suffice me, and it's not going to to, to make me calm down on, on how they're dealing with this. And I know it's around safety, and I get what you're saying. It's around 18 games. But, man, what an effect that can have on a game. It it, it is horrible. Maybe that's a former defensive player coming out in me and making me get mad about that. But that's a guy trying to make a play, not breaking, in my opinion, not breaking the rule and getting flagged for it anyway, where you stand there and then you say, well, what the hell am I supposed to do?
1: Two quick points. One, I spoke to somebody yesterday who is intimately familiar with how the rule was developed and how it's implemented and how it's supposed to be enforced. One of the realities is this. If Ty Johnson doesn't drop his helmet and create helmet-to-helmet contact, the flag most likely isn't thrown, even though it still would have been a violation because technically you're not allowed to lower your helmet and initiate contact. But it is seeing the two helmets hit that makes the official more likely to grab the flag. So actually, Ty Johnson, who violated the same rule, basically took the charge there, dropped the helmet, And Drew the foul when he drops out. But if he keeps his head up and it's just Mike Hilton's helmet hitting his thigh, there's not going to be a flag there. Second point, and I'll defer to my book Playmakers, it comes out March 15, because I got a chapter on how this rule came to be, how it was crafted, how it was jammed in and onto the agenda at the league meetings in 2018. And nobody knew it was coming. This is all PR and legal, and safety-driven, and it does not reflect the reality of how football is played, and that's one of the reasons why they have struggled with this rule, and the problem, as we've said, it's inconsistently applied, and so when it is applied in a spot like that, and it feels like a team had a game taken away from it, that's when people start thinking something's going on, even if it's not, that's when people start thinking it. Let's take a break. Superlatives for Week 8 when this Monday edition of PFT Live continues right after this.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.